My name is Colleen Swindoll-Thompson. I am the Director of Reframing Ministries at Insight for Living, and I am delighted to have as my guest back again, Michelle Cachette. Michelle, thanks for being with me today. Thanks, Colleen. I'm so glad to be here. Well, you've had a few things go on this last year. (laughs) Before that, I would say you were very involved and now are involved again with Mike Hyatt and the podcast, This Is Your Life, which I absolutely love. Thank you so much for being a part of that. Thank you for that. And um, we recorded a day before you went into a surgery. Why don't you pick up where we left off? Okay, yes, absolutely. So the last time you and I recorded the interview was actually uh, November 24th, uh, 2014. So just a little over a year ago. And it was the day before I was going in for a nine-hour cancer surgery that was going to remove two-thirds of my tongue. It was the third time that I had been diagnosed with this type of cancer. It come back for the third time. And uh, this surgery was far more extensive than the surgeries I had had in the five years before. And this one, like I said, was nine hours long where they took out two-thirds of my tongue. They took out tissue and vessels for my arm and my neck and my my left thigh to try to rebuild my mouth so I would have some functionality again. And and after giving me about four weeks to recover from that surgery, four whole weeks. (laughs) Wow, they gave you a long time. I know, four whole (laughs) weeks. uh, They started very intense external radiation and chemotherapy on me that lasted for six weeks. And then I had yet another surgery in February where they did internal radiation, uh, which is, I don't want to make anybody too terribly uncomfortable here, but literally they injected radiation directly into my my tongue and my mouth. And so you can imagine uh, between the surgery in November, the treatment in December, January, and February, that uh, by the time all was said and done, as the doctors have told me again and again, they literally took me to the brink of death. And then when I could take nothing else, when my body could survive nothing else, then they slowly started to bring me back to life. And it's taken the the vast majority of the last 12 months for me to even be able to uh, function again. So uh, I would say probably within just the last eight weeks, I've been able to feel a little bit more like my old self. I'll never be my old self again. Uh, but feel a little bit more physically healthy, but I still live with the losses of the past uh, year, five years, significantly. For example, I will never speak the same again. You can tell I speak with a lisp. Uh, I have uh, uh, maybe 20 or 30% of my taste left. Uh, Swallowing, speaking uh, is very, very difficult. Every word is hard for me to speak. I have scars all over my body and then all kinds of long-term implications uh, and consequences of the last five years of cancer and treatment. So like you said, I've had a little going on over the last year. (laughs) Just a little. Well, what was interesting is our discussion was about the book that you had just written, Undone, Making Peace with an Imperfect Life. And it was about surviving cancer twice. And so when we made the arrangement, we had no idea that you'd Mm -hmm. be stepping back into the operating room following our interview. Yes, in Um, fact, the book was uh, released uh, two weeks after my last surgery and last treatment. So it was, the book was released when I had zero ability to get out of bed or talk or promote the book at all whatsoever. And so very literally, I was living through um, the truths that I portrayed in that book. I was having to live them out as the book was coming out at the same time. 
Did you ever want to rewrite part of it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've told God many times, the next time I'm writing a book about chocolate or, or the beach, or maybe yeah. chocolate and the beach, because <laughs> I want to write about something much happier. I think that's a grand idea. Um, you made a statement a minute ago that I think is very significant, Michelle, and that is, I will never return to who I was. Um, how have you... How has that process unfolded for you? Oh, goodness. It's still unfolding. I'm still in the process of that. Uh, What happened, so very literally, the person that I was the day before that surgery and the person I am now are two completely different women. Mm -hmm. Uh, I look different physically. Uh, My face, my neck, my body is so impacted by all the treatment and the burning and the surgeries and the cutting and everything that I physically look very different. I sound different. Uh, But what people don't see are all the emotional changes as well. You can't go through such a significant trauma without being a different person. And then uh, the spiritual changes. I mean, boy, my faith went through a beating over the last two years, especially and and so literally, I am not the same person I was before. In many ways, that woman died and she she didn't come back. And so I'm having to learn to um, make peace with now this person who's very, very different than what she was before. And that's not an easy process, especially for someone who's you know, 44 years old. So I grew pretty comfortable with that old woman <laughs> that I knew before. <laughs> and so this new person, uh, you know... It's like getting to know her all over again, and I don't always like uh, who she is. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, talk about wrestling with your identity and who you are and what your life is about and who God is and what your purpose is. You know, all those things are things that I've had to and I'm still having to uh, reframe, actually, and uh, mm-hmm. which is so interesting because it fits perfectly with your whole ministry, this idea mm-hmm. of reframing Uh, how we see ourselves, who we are, and how we view God through all of it. Well, one of the reasons we did move into the direction of renaming or renaming the department as Reframing Ministries is because not one of us hits anything and goes through life without hitting some kind of life-altering experience. Yes. And for you, it was cancer. It could be the death of a child, the death of a spouse. It could be a disease. It could be a car accident, a surgery, it could be whatever it is, but it takes us, like you just said, to the brink of death almost. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, things do die, don't they? Absolutely. Um, I read in a book that the other day, Choices That Change Lives, about how we treat God often in some of these situations, either as a genie in the bottle or we play Let's Make a Deal with Them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do no, not, that, not that I've ever home. done those things, but I've heard. I've heard of that course. other people do that. <laughs> um what which one of those was harder for you as you went through this reframing process of letting go of who you were, having to accept what God had allowed? Was there some bargaining and deal making and 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 you fill in the blank? Yeah, I would say the first time, the first two times going through cancer, there was a whole lot of bargaining and deal making and uh, and even trying to change my behavior to be good enough to not have it come back. Mm-hmm. Everything from how I ate to exercise to, uh, you know, 
how I talked, all of it, trying to be good enough that, you know, cancer wouldn't come back again. But when it comes back for a third time, you start to realize that no matter how hard you're trying to bargain and deal, for some reason, uh, God's not delivering me from this. Uh, He's not taking it away. And so that's when the bargaining and deal-making became more of a really getting down to the foundation of what I believed about the character and purposes of God, which is really where I started wrestling with my faith. Because uh, if if I'm praying, 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 and, and thousands of people were praying for my healing, mm-hmm. and I'm not being healed, uh, what does that say about God? What does that say about me? And what does that say about how much I matter to him? And all those questions that we all wrestle with at some point in time. So I really had to peel back to the very basics of my faith mm-hmm. and decide if I, first of all, uh, believe God was real. I, these are the three questions I think we all answer ask mm-hmm. when we get to a really uh, very traumatic place in our life. Mm-hmm. We ask, is God real? Second, if he's real, is he good? And third, can I trust him? And those were the three questions that I had to uh, really dig down and decide how I wanted to answer those. Hmm. And uh, and that began a reframing or rebuilding of my faith from the ground up. I've, I've been going to church since I was six months old. My parents became Christians when I was a baby. Uh, so I've never not known a life of faith. But that's a very different thing than... Uh, having their life completely fall apart and and rebuilding your faith on uh, a life that doesn't go according to plan. Then it has to be built on the character of God and not the behavior of God. Very or the behavior things. of us. Exactly. Because a lot of times we do think if I do all these things and if I am very good and disciplined, then God will deliver. And mm-hmm. the genie out of the bottle is going to pop out and all those wishes are going to come true. And what popped out was a third surgery and a hellacious year. Exactly. Did you and ever get mad? Oh, <laughs> do I still get mad? <laughs> yes, of course. I mean, and I don't think there's anything wrong with getting mad. I, hmm. In fact, there's a part of me that really truly believes that God gets angry at the brokenness of this world. That he, mm. this is not... Uh, this is this is not what he uh, this is not the best that he has in mind for us. He has something far better that's coming, and so I think he sees our grief and he grieves with us. The Bible talks about how he grieves over our suffering and and feels our pain and has great compassion for our pain. And, and so I don't think there's anything wrong with being mad. In fact, uh, I I am starting to feel that when I when I am when I grieve over the losses of this life it are probably the moments that I'm most close to the cross. Yes. Uh, and when I choose to pretend like everything's fine and I refuse to acknowledge the very real grief and loss and the sin in this life and the pain in this life, I, I'm actually denying the necessity and the glory and the purpose and the, and the power of the cross. Hmm. Uh, it, I, what, what Jesus went through and chose to walk through for us uh, is absolutely powerful and profound. Mm-hmm. And it's only in my pain and suffering and my anger and grief over it that I truly am able to be on my knees at the foot of the cross and, and have a, the barest glimpse of understanding of the price that Jesus paid for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's so interesting. I was just talking with my dad yesterday about this, how oftentimes when life doesn't work the way we want it to, we get very angry with God. And I said, mm-hmm. you know, what's interesting is Jesus probably had 
a few emotions about leaving heaven and arriving in a manger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that was his father's will. Uh-huh. And he allowed that. And it was his father's will for him to go to the cross for us. That's a love that is just beyond me. It is. I mean, and we don't get that, right? We were born into very human flesh. We didn't leave perfection. We didn't leave heaven to pain. So, I mean, imagine how much our pain devastates us. Now, imagine how much more it would devastate us if we knew the perfection of heaven first. I, I mean, it just... That'd be a that big bummer. Would, <laughs> that would be a major bummer. <laughs> I, the fact that Jesus would do that for us is profound. And the fact that he also... I, I mean, I spend so much time thinking about those moments that he spent in the garden, agonizing yeah. in prayer and asking God to take this cup from him. And uh, and yet his willingness to see beyond the immediate pain and suffering to what it would co- accomplish and his willingness to go through it because of what would be accomplished on the other side. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's just, it blows my mind that he would be so submissive to the, the purposes and glory of God that he would do that. And in my moments of great pain, I, I need the Jesus that was in the garden crying out because that's yes. where I'm at too. Yeah. And he gets it and he's okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned a minute ago that you wrestled with, is there a God? And if there is, is he good? And mm-hmm. if he is, can I trust him? What were, which one of those was the hardest and where have you landed on that? Well, I, I would say the, the hardest was, uh, is God real? Because by definition, you know, the whole definition of God, if he's real, his character would have to be good in order for him to truly be God. And then if he's good, I can't trust him. But it really started in this whole concept of, uh, is God just a figment of our imagination, a crutch that we've created to lean on, which so many, um, you know, secular philosophies suggest, right. or is he real? You know, is the Bible real? Is God real? And if I could, if I could really make peace with the fact that yes, I believe he's real and that he exists, then working through the other two was a lot easier for me. Mm. Not easy, <laughs> easier, mm. but it really started uh, with, uh, is he real? And the mm. beautiful thing is, is at first I felt so much shame and guilt for even having these questions, right? After going to mm. church for 44 years, how could I even entertain such doubts and questions? And yet, I found through the process that my doubts were not, uh, they didn't make God any less real and it didn't compromise his own sense of security about himself. He's pretty confident in who he is. And so in the process of of walking through those and just telling the truth about them, mm-hmm. I also found that God could be trusted to lead me through them, mm-hmm. that the truth would stand no matter my questions. And so as a result, on the other side of it, my faith didn't become weak my actually, actually, my faith became stronger than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. It's ever become mm-hmm. as a result of the very doubts I thought would um, would eliminate my faith. Yes, one of the most critical things that happens when someone goes through a period of suffering is when they're shamed for having doubts, because doubt, I believe, is the gateway to investigating what really is authentic faith. Mm-hmm. You know, I can oh, say, I agree, a hundred percent. I've believed all these things for all my life, and yet I've done all these things a certain way, and when it's not worked out, i got to examine my the very core of what I'm believing. Mm-hmm. Part mm-hmm. One of the steps in reframing is identifying some of those core values. What, like you just said, I'm a very different person. What core values do you cling to now that you did not 
um, have as a part of your thoughts and your belief system before? Oh, goodness. There are so many. One is very simply the necessity and the gift of suffering. And that's everything in us as humans. We resist that and pull back from that because suffering is something that needs to be cured and fixed and resolved. Uh, And there's nothing wrong with bringing some relief to other people's pain. However, uh, I, for so long, had viewed uh, suffering is a problem to be fixed. Hmm. And I'm seeing my eyes are opened now more and more to different stories and verses in the Bible where uh, Peter talks about uh, the suffering, the, nece- the necessity of suffering to uh, achieve a faith that is refined. Yeah. Uh, it's so critical. And so rather than resist it as an interruption to our life, learning to see it as something to be embraced as a necessary ingredient into the development of our faith. I mean, that's, that's a huge reframe. That's a huge mind shift, especially, especially for those of us in Western American culture, where Mm -hmm. we really think comfort is the ultimate aim and goal. Uh, This whole idea of embracing suffering is such a foreign concept for us. And, and that's been a massive, a massive and, and beautiful reframing of my spiritual perspective. Hmm. Um, it's interesting. I'm thinking of the book, The Gift of Pain by Paul Brand and Philip Yancey. Have you read that book? I've read sections of it because okay. uh, Timothy Keller wrote a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Yes. And he quotes uh, Paul Brand many times throughout that book. And, and I have several of Philip Yancey's books as well. So I love these guys because they're willing to talk about hard stuff. <laughs> they really are. And it, when I talked with Philip one time, um, he said, Exactly what you just said. In the West, we don't know how to embrace suffering, mm-hmm. which is profoundly um, hard to understand when the one thing Scripture promises over and over and over and over and over from beginning to end, <laughs> it's going to be suffering. tough. Yes. <laughs> You're going to suffer. It tells you something's wrong. It's the alarm mm-hmm. system. It's the fire alarm going off saying, this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. But it will be one day. Um, mm-hmm. In another study that I came across, Michelle, by John and Diane Dudek on wisdom, they studied people over a 10-year period of time, and then they wrote a book, How to Get an A in Life, which I almost always say how to get a life, but it's how to get an A in life. <laughs> I'm, just trying, <laughs> I'm just trying to get a life. They said um, the fundamental qualities of people that they studied were, um, there's seven of them, but it came through the suffering that they endured and their faith, integrity, attitude, discipline, relationships, growth, and balance. In all of those areas the first they mentioned faith. Would you say that's the starting point when you're reframing something in your life that has just taken you under? Well, I I don't know how to reframe anything else without faith. Because if mm. you don't have faith that there is a God and that there is a greater purpose going on and there's an eternity waiting for us, then all of this is futile and a waste of time anyway. And let's go uh, have chocolate. I, I mean, why <laughs> reframe anything? We're just victims of a random... Uh, negative, horrific, 
life that has no purpose, uh, no longevity, no meaning, no legacy. So why reframe anything? We just need to feel sorry for ourselves and drink ourselves into a frenzy because this whole thing stinks, right? Right. Uh, so I, I don't know how to, ref- I honestly don't know how to reframe anything else without faith being the starting point because it's the only thing that adds some kind of meaning to our losses, it's the only thing that adds some kind of purpose that's greater than our individual stories. Mm. Uh, it's the only thing that gives us some kind of hope beyond the temporal. Otherwise, we're just mortal beings that are going to turn to dust, and, and none of this matters. None of it. Right. Did you feel lost at all when you were examining your faith? Because the faith is the foundation, and and you've got God tossed up there as... Does he exist? Did you sometimes feel like you were in the wilderness? Oh, yes. And I still do. I I don't know that we as humans ever get beyond, uh, get to a place where we have arrived. I mean, we will always be human. That means we're always going to have, um, we're always going to have limitations to our ability, our perspective, limitations to our perspective on things. We're going to be influenced by our culture. We're going to be impacted by our own pain. And so we all have moments of being lost, which is why we have to have something that is an anchor outside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if my if my sense of security and my sense of uh, if my GPS is just myself, my own my own compass, my own sense of direction, I am going to be lost all the time. Yeah, I so would be lost all the time, all the time. <laughs> and so I have to have a. I have to have a GPS, a, a point, a pinpoint that resides outside of my own uh, mind and my own heart, because I, I, you know, I I have such a narrow, limited perspective, and so uh, for me, that's why I had to, especially on the days I felt the most lost, I had to open up my Bible again and mm. and really dig into truth and really wrestle through what I believe to be true and. Uh, and even memorizing verses and reminding myself of, of truth when my own mind was wanting to deceive me about the reality of God or the love of God. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I still have moments where I feel lost. I don't know that you and I will ever not have those days, which is why, you know, the Bible is so good at saying, you know, we have this hope as the anchor of our soul, firm and steadfast. Yes. Um, Michelle, when you were going through this, um, the healing process and I mean, the burns that your body endured and the pain, mm-hmm. do you still have chronic pain? Oh yeah. All the time. Talking is excruciating. So, uh, like right now, and this is not for sympathy, <laughs> but, but I'm uh, so I have sorry. almost, no, it's okay. I have almost no saliva. So to spend this much time talking makes my throat uh, chronically dry and sore. Uh, trying to pronounce every word uh, requires so much effort because radiation causes fibrosis of your muscles. So my tongue, my mouth, my cheeks, my neck uh, feels like cement. So just to move and to talk uh, is requires extraordinary effort. And then once I'm finished talking, you know, talking is always comes at a cost. So what I do talking now means I talk less later today. And so there's always that give and take. And so, yeah, I live with uh, constant physical uh, pain. It's not, an, it's not an acute pain like it was a year ago. So I'm not on 
narcotics anymore, thank heavens. You're not uh, a but, drug addict? <laughs> no. But let me tell you, I was on pretty hefty stuff for about eight months. It was bad. I can't uh, imagine. But yeah, I'm not on pain meds anymore, but I deal with chronic discomfort. There's a good chance I'm going to lose my teeth because of radiation. I, I mean, I could go on and on. I can't swallow very well. I can't eat very well. I, you know, all of those different things. So, Okay, so you are not in a place of comfort no. Really ever? <laughs> no, I'm not. Darn. I know. You know we, let's talk about comfort for a minute because I think we have lost the true definition of what comfort really is. I actually did a word study on this just a couple of weeks ago. And Excellent. This, this has re, this is, talk about reframing. This has been a big reframe for me as well. We think of comfort as the delivering of ease, right? So yes. uh, when I'm in the hospital and when I was in pain, the nurse would come in and say, uh, I'm going to go talk with the doctor and see if we can get you something to make you more comfortable. Yes. And what she meant by that is she's going to go get a dose of morphine and give it to me so I became numb and didn't feel so much pain. Or when you and I come home from a long day at work and our our suits and blouse, we say, you know, what? I'm going to go change into something comfortable because I'm tired of yes. wearing, right? So yes. the whole concept is a concept of ease. However, the original Latin word from which comfort comes from is the word, and I'm going to say it wrong, but it's comfortair. And it, it actually means, you can see within it the word fort, it means to strengthen. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. It means to strengthen. Okay, keep talking. The, I gotta hear okay, this. the idea of delivering ease, comfort delivering ease, didn't come about till the 17th century. Okay, so this is a relatively new definition for comfort. However, if you go into the Bible and you look at, let's say, um, uh, let's see, 1 Corinthians or is it 2 Corinthians? Because um, this is so, 2 Corinthians 1. Um, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, mm -hmm. who comforts us in all our troubles, said that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received. That original, uh, that Greek word has the implication of strengthening, not delivering ease. Interesting. Okay? So this goes back to this idea that when God offers us comfort, he's not necessarily offering to take all our pain away. He's, his offering and his promise is to deliver a strength in the midst of our pain, to come for terror, to, for in, to fortify us, to build us yeah. up, to strengthen us for what we will endure. And then what's also so profound about this is that when we're called to comfort others, our calling is not to go and, and relieve everybody's pain. Yes. Our comfort is, or our offering of comfort is to give them the strength to bear up under it. But this is where we, you and I usually struggle when offering comfort because we think we need to relieve their pain. Mm -hmm. And most of us know we can't. And so mm -hmm. then that's when we shut down, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and instead, we're supposed to strengthen each other with the strength mm -hmm. that we have ourselves received from God. Isn't that powerful that's so powerful because that's one of my favorite passages and then he goes into i think in verse 10 or 11 part of the purposes of going through those difficult times is so that we are then enabled to be a comfort to others so to uh -huh. fortify to stand with mm -hmm. others in that same position it's i mean it's just it's a massive concept i think of how many times that i have been disappointed uh, with God because he didn't relieve my pain, right? So we pray for, and and certainly there are times that he has re relieved my physical pain and brought 
uh, physical ease in a place of pain. However, his promise wasn't so much to take away all suffering. That really wasn't what it was all about. It was to give us the strength to bear up under it for the glory of God and for the purposes of God, which is exactly what he did through Christ. He didn't take Jesus's pain away, but boy, he gave him beautiful strength to bear up under it, which is our gain, right? Thank heavens he didn't take Christ's suffering away because it was his suffering that saved us. Yes, and thank goodness he gave us the Holy Spirit, our comforter, who is then able to fill us with what we cannot be filled with ourselves. We don't have the strength. You didn't have the strength. No, to make oh, it no, without no, him. Um, what I'm also hearing, Michelle, is kind of a redefinition of a lot of words, not just comfort, mm-hmm. but disappointment and relief and um, it, God's goodness, his faithfulness, his love for us. When you hear people talk now on a faith level, do you hear it differently than you used to hear it? I guess. Uh in, in different, in multiple different ways, yeah. you know, there, uh, I, I'm learning that we as Christians, especially those of us who have uh, gone to church all our life or listened to church lingo for a long time, we throw a lot around a lot of phrases that sometimes we don't really fully understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I surrender included. all. I couldn't <laughs> sing that song for two years and I didn't because I thought I can't, I can't yeah. sing that because I my heart isn't there yet. I uh, Two Sundays ago, we sang Your Grace is Enough at Church. Huh. And, uh, you know, that's, that chorus just repeats, Your Grace is Enough, Your Grace is Enough, Your Grace is Enough for me. And I thought, how many times have I sung that song and I didn't mean it a lick of it? Yes. <laughs> I didn't mean God's grace was enough. I meant God's grace plus comfort plus yes. children who behave plus a happy marriage plus a good job plus financial <laughs> security is enough. <laughs> I mean, just right? to name a few. <laughs> just, yeah, just a few. Where's the and, genie in the bottle again? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I'm sitting there in church, and for the first time, I sang that song. And I was hesitant to even say it. And then I finally was like, no, I, I think I think I can say it and mean it finally. But what was so interesting to me is, or at least I meant it that day. I'm sure it would change by Monday, but I meant it that day. <laughs> Uh, but what was interesting as I was standing there is, you know, I'm surrounded by a thousand men and women and children singing it. And my thought was, how many of them have no idea? Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, and and just like I didn't know until suffering, how many of them have no idea what they're, what this really means? And God, make us the people who can honestly say your grace is enough because we're not there yet. We're just not. And you're right. It may be today that we can sing it, but tomorrow, because we are so human, yep. if we're not clinging to our Lord, then then we won't have that grace to be enough mm-hmm. for that day. It is a day-to-day thing. And it really is grace. I mean, ironically enough, that whole song, Your Grace is Enough, I mean, it really comes back to that. We That's what we need because we are so wretchedly human. I mean, it's we need that ocean of grace constantly. Michelle, what were some of the things that um, were very fortifying or comforting to you in the healing process? Because part of the reframing outline includes um, reaching out for help and support structures. Mm -hmm. Because when we're wiped off our feet, we can't get back up without help. What things or people 
came alongside and helped you? Okay, well, uh, there, as you can imagine, uh, you know, I was pretty much sick nonstop for two straight years. And so uh, I went from being an extremely uh, independent and stubborn woman. That's how my husband would describe me, I'm just saying, <laughs> uh, to being a very dependent woman. I could not do, I couldn't do most things alone. I That's mean, hard, I, isn't it? It's very hard. I needed, there were times my husband had to help me bathe, help me dress. Uh, I needed help to eat. I needed help to take my medication. I mean, I could not be left alone because of choking hazards and all of that. So I became extremely dependent uh, and that was a loss in and of itself. So yeah, there were definitely things that helped immensely and things that did not help at all. And it, it was quite an education for me. So let's practically talk. Some things that really helped. Uh, I, I love the people who just flat out asked, what do you need most right now? Uh, because they knew that they just didn't know. And sometimes I could answer and sometimes I couldn't. But the fact that they were brave enough to say, I want to help. I don't know what to do. So what is it you need most right now? Do you How need How great is that? And that, it's a simple question. Yes. What do you need most right now? Do you need company? Do you need to be alone? Uh, do you need to cry? Do you need to laugh? Do you need food for your family? Do you need your laundry done? Do you need your sheets changed? Uh, you know, just simply asking, what do you need most right now? Mm. What doesn't help is the people who say, let me know if you need anything. Mm. <laughs> I can't talk. So yeah, how exactly. about, let's start there. Not helpful. No. Plus, who's going to take advantage of that? Let me know if you need anything. I, I, you know, I'm not going to pick up the phone and call and say, hey, I need something today. Okay. So it, it was more helpful to people who just saw a need and just determined to meet it or would ask, what do you need most? Uh, we had families who provided food for us okay. uh, three, four days a week for six months. I mean, just... When you have this many kids and mama is on flat on her back, that's huge. Enormous. Uh, that's enormous. We had neighbors who signed us up for a laundry service once a week. So my husband just put the laundry in a bag on the front porch and somebody came and picked it up and did the laundry and returned it cleaned and folded. How fantastic. I know. Uh, and those sound like small things, but uh, all the neighbors got together and shipped in financially and took care of that for about three months for us. And it was huge. I mean, just huge. Uh, I had friends who drove me to appointments and just showed up at my front door and picked me up. And it took some of the pressure off my husband. Uh, For a long time, I drove myself until I couldn't get too sick. But uh, another friend, uh, one of my friends, and this was so helpful, uh, planned trips to my house. She lives out of state. She came every two to three months to stay at my house for three to four days. She didn't talk. I couldn't talk. She didn't talk. But just to make sure I knew I wasn't alone. She just sat on the couch next to me. She worked or read books or took naps while I was napping. But just so I knew I wasn't forgotten. And she does that. She's she's done that even as recent as a few months ago. I mean, she stuck with me for the long haul. Another friend uh, allowed me to talk and cry and process. Once the physical trial was done, the emotional uh, struggle happened. You can't go through such a physical trauma without having some... PTSD kind of responses to it after the fact. Absolutely. Right? And so for months and months, and still even a little bit now, I would have days where I just needed to cry and grieve the losses and talk about them. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't easy for her because she had to listen to me talk about, honestly, some of the physical horrors of what I endured, and that can turn a stomach. And yet she sat and listened and and let me cry. And she cried with me. And she let me tell some of the same stories three and four and five times just because she knew I needed to process through it. 
I mean, what a gift, right? We we want somebody to talk about it once and them to be done with it and move on. And so mm-hmm. those friends that were willing to uh, not force a timetable on me, but allow me to process at my pace, that was a tremendous help. But they endured with you. I mean, you mentioned they people endured. doing the practical things, signing mm-hmm. you up for the laundry service. Um, did they include a lawn mowing service? <laughs> <laughs> no. Cleaning um, my carpets. Um, food, and then just sitting with you. Mm-hmm. There's something about the way we approach helping others. Like you mentioned at the beginning of our talk, we want to fix them. And having a child with special needs, he'll never be fixed. Mm-hmm. And perhaps the Lord doesn't need him to be fixed. Maybe I'm the one that needs a lot of work. Well, I know mm-hmm. I do. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and because of that, those who came into your life not to fix you, but to be with you, provided it a lot of pain. Yeah. Yes, I, I learned that we are all very uncomfortable with pain. And our response yeah. to pain is to resolve it. And when we can't resolve it, we run away from it. And that means that when you and I see somebody that's suffering and we can't do anything to fix it, like we'll take a meal and we'll listen once and we'll come visit once. But when we can't see obvious results from our efforts, that pain makes us feel pain. And we don't like that. And who's the and, center of that anyways? Exactly. We're making it all about ourselves, yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> and so one of the best things we can do for people who struggle is to learn ourselves to be okay with discomfort, yes. to learn to suffer with those who suffer, uh, to gr- cry with those who cry, to feel their pain, to understand mm-hmm. that if we feel uncomfortable, maybe that means we're carrying just a, a just a fraction, a, you know, seeing just a glimpse of the pain that they're feeling. And if they can go through what they're going through, then we can be a little uncomfortable too. Mm-hmm. And isn't that what Jesus talks about? No greater gift can man give than to lay his life down for his friend. Granted, he laid his actual life. But when we choose to enter into somebody else's suffering, we're laying down our own comfort, our own life for that friend. And, and there's really no greater gift. But we have to learn to be okay with pain ourselves before we can do that. Yes. And I think that is the that is the turnkey, is becoming um, people of um, that we're okay in who we are, and we give mm-hmm. the other person freedom to be who they are. Exactly. Um, what didn't help? Oh, uh, not being able to hit <laughs> someone when they said something. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I I had a couple of friends. Well, mean these are all well-meaning things. Well-meaning friends who, uh, when I couldn't respond to their texts or their emails or their phone calls assumed that I was mad at them or they had done something wrong. And so they would text and say, uh, did I do something wrong? Did I offend you? And, you know, the reality, I was so sick. I had no, I couldn't even, I couldn't even lift a hand, let alone pick up my phone and send a text back. And so those people who didn't take personal my responses, who allowed, you know, who allowed me a wide bubble of grace in the Mm -hmm. middle of this, those helped. Those who were so insecure that couldn't offer grace, that did not help at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some other things that didn't help, uh, I had so many people, I still do, so many people who sent me emails and phone calls Mm -hmm. and messages on on how to cure my own cancer. So the diets that I needed to eat and the drugs (laughs) I needed to take and the oils I needed to use. And (laughs) And let me fix you. Yeah. And the clinics in Mexico that I needed to go to and all of that. And, you know, I'm a very holistic person. So I'm all about health and wellness. 
But the implication behind that, so in these offers of help, the the implication behind that is I must have done something to cause my cancer, thus I can fix it. And that's a that's a heavy burden to lay on somebody. Mm. And I again, it was very well-meaning, not helpful. Right. Uh, not helpful, especially for people who do not have the kind of trust relationship mm. as a foundation to deliver that kind of advice. Yeah. What did, um, how did your church help through all well, of this? We had just recently changed churches. And so that was an interesting scenario where we did not have uh, an established church family that could help us, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, church, and maybe this will minister to some people who are there right now, church was not part of our support system through this uh-huh. because we are in the middle of transition. And that was a hard thing. However, we had several friends because we've lived in the same place for a long time that are Christian friends. So they weren't necessarily part of the building church that we attended, but they're part of God's greater church. And absolutely, uh, one of them organized a whole meal scenario. She had, I mean, bless her heart. She put two coolers on my front porch, a blue one and a red one, one for hot <laughs> food, one for cold food. And so everybody could deliver the food without coming inside. And we could have food there without having to entertain people every night. And I mean, just so many different things like that. That's excellent. Um, a couple more things. I have a prayer that I want to read. Um, how has this changed your time with the Lord and your prayer life? <laughs> well, confession time. You ready for a big old confession? Yes. Just slam I'm, me with it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a good Bible study girl. I love doing a good old Bible study and filling in the blanks and, and doing all that. But my prayer life was almost non-existent. Okay. I, I would pray... You know, while I was doing dishes, I would pray while driving around town. I would pray while, you know, walking here and there and doing other errands. But as far as sitting in my room and just allowing myself to stop moving and be fully in the presence of God and listen to him, it was non-existent. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bible study was, I'm a, I'm a doer. So Bible study was like checking something off a to-do list. Prayer was too abstract and vague. It didn't. <laughs> yeah, it's boring. It, Yeah, I mean, it's not something you could check off your to-do list. Uh, And But what I found is uh, I, without having that strong prayer life, Mm. I was a very fragile, weak woman. I Mm. desperately needed it. And so slowly over, oh goodness, during my time of grief, especially, so maybe August, September, October last year, Mm. I started setting aside 15 minutes a day where I would just go sit in my bedroom and just listen to God. I wouldn't fill out a journal. I wouldn't fill out blanks in a Bible study. I would just literally sit on the floor, uh, you know, eyes closed. Just, okay, God, I'm here. Speak to me. Mm. And it was excruciating for the first couple of weeks. I was going to say, that would be so hard because that's opposite of everything you're made of. Yeah. I mean, it's just to sit still for 15 minutes when I have this many kids and responsibilities and everything else. It's like, I don't have time for this. And after, of course, you after, were sitting on the roof, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Contemplating <yeah>. the jump. <laughs> I, but after a couple of weeks, I was—I wondered how I ever made it without it. Huh. Uh, I started to realize that I—I uh, I had been more in love with doing for God than just loving God. Hmm. I had been more in love with, more committed to ministry and service and being active for God than just Mm -hmm. dwelling in his presence and knowing him. Mm -hmm. Uh, And those are two very, very, very big differences. 
Uh, and so I, I'm still in this process. It's still a very hard discipline for me. It's just yeah. really not easy to stop everything and sit. Uh, but I just did some more study yesterday on this absolute critical nature of the discipline of prayer yeah. uh, and where you just hang out with him. Yeah. And to the point where I'm, I'm so convinced of its necessi- necessity that I'm afraid to not do it because I know uh, this isn't the end of my struggles. I mean, this is a very undone uh, life. More suffering, more pain is always on the horizon because that's what the Bible promises us. Yep. And I have to have, I have to have that daily connection with him or I'm sunk. Um, one of the things that comes through the reframing process is we, we find new passions and new purposes that new directions that we didn't have necessarily before the whole thing blew up. And it's kind of like an <laughs> awakening, like, Lord, I had no idea you were going to open these doors. Has that happened for you in some ways? Yeah, in many ways. I I thought that losing my ability to speak clearly would um, ruin my speaking career. And yeah, isn't it amazing that the Lord allowed tongue cancer and you're a speaker and a coach? Yeah, I make <laughs> I make a living as a speaker and yeah, I consult and a coach. I do podcasts. I speak everywhere. Uh, and yeah, uh, not to mention I'm a mother and mothers of lots of children need the ability to speak. So yeah, I really thought that, uh, you know, I talk with an obvious lisp. Uh, I felt like my new speech sounded very unprofessional and unintelligent mm-hmm. and that this would certainly ruin uh, my speaking career, that I'd have to quit. Mm-hmm. The truth is it certainly has changed it mm-hmm. uh, and it certainly has altered. And I'm certain there are people who uh, don't enjoy listening to me because my speech is different. But I've also discovered that uh, the fact that I I now carry on the outside of my body, my flaws, gives me a unique credibility to speak into subjects that I did not have the credibility to speak into before. Uh, Things like faith, things like suffering, things like the reality of God when life doesn't go according to plan, uh, things like perseverance and leading in the midst of crisis and all those different things I could have talked about before, but I didn't have the credibility to speak to it in the same way. And now all of a sudden uh, people lean in just a little bit more because uh, I have an obvious, uh, I guess an obvious scar, an obvious evidence of what I've endured. And from that standpoint, I hope God never heals my speech because it's allowed me to go into places and to talk about things that I wouldn't have been afforded to before. Isn't it the most remarkable example of the fact that we're broken human beings? One of the greatest gifts that I have with John in him being non-typical is the daily example standing in front of me. This is the human condition. Mm -hmm. We can try and make it look better, but the reality is we are not whole. And you now have that and live with that as a daily reminder. I have that. I think that is a profound gift in and of itself. Oh, I so agree. I, I tell people uh, there's a couple of presentations I do where I talk about this, but I was I was just as broken before as I am now. In fact, in many ways, I'm probably more whole now than I was before. But I was just as much of a broken person before as I am now. However, I just made a lifetime out of hiding it, hmm. packaging it, uh, minimizing it, so that way I could please and impress and and try to woo everybody around me. Now I can't hide my brokenness anymore, and it's. 
for for the first time, <laughs> I'm less less. I'm still working on it. I'm less caught up in my own glory and my own attention, and far more committed to God's because I can't hide my flaws. Yeah, and you're becoming comfortable with them. Becoming. That's the key yeah. word. Becoming. I, I'm not arrived yet. I, there's still some human vanity that needs to be slain. And <laughs> I still feel embarrassment at the way that I speak. I still uh, feel some humiliation at how I sound. That's just my humanity. But uh, it just it reminds me again and again uh, of uh, what Jesus said in, in Matthew 16. Let me open it really quick. But uh, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good um, would it be for a man if he gains a whole world yet it forfeits his soul? Mm -hmm. And so every day, this physical flaw that I, I struggle with in the pain is my daily cross. It just reminds me uh, every single day that if I really want to save my life, I have to lose it. And so I go through losing my life every single day uh, so I can gain it in him. And the hope is in heaven. There are times that John will struggle with something and he'll say, um, Mom, I can't wait to be in heaven because I know it's not going to be as hard. I'm like, well, oh, yeah. I can't either, but you're not going anywhere yet. And he hasn't called you. So stick around. <laughs> I'm not losing you. <laughs> Oh, I talk all the time about the fact that, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm, you know, since I lost most of my taste, I'm pretty certain that God's going to have a dozen donuts waiting for me when I get there because <laughs> he knows I love donuts. And so, you know, everybody else is going to have the wedding supper of the lamb and they're going to have all kinds of great wine and roast turkey or whatever. And I'm going to have a plate of donuts, but. And I'll have ice cream. And we'll make Yay! it a day. <laughs> well, I will say this, Michelle, having listened to the podcast that you and Mike do for a while, and I told you this the first time that you came back, I hear a different tone in your soul. And mm. all of our lives come out of our, our hearts and souls. I can hear a different person that I think is beautiful. Mm, thank you. That's and the I, grace of God. I really, really mean that. There's there's a part of you that's so authentic and so real. Um, I can't help but think how God is going to use this, even though there is suffering on your side all the time. Mm -hmm. um, as we wrap up, Michelle, will you speak to those who are in the midst of having to reframe their life and mm -hmm. find a new way? Oh, goodness. Uh, well, first of all, I'm sorry. Uh, just from a place of compassion, my heart aches with you because I know I know the isolation of suffering and I know the questions and doubts and confusion that suffering stirs up. And so from that standpoint, uh, my heart aches with yours for that because I know I know what it's costing you, at least a little bit right now. Mm. However, I also want to be a, a bit of a a beacon from someone who's just a little bit further down the road. Mm. Uh, as horrible as a circumstance is, as unjust and unfair and, uh, and heinous as your circumstances are, uh, they, the circumstances themselves don't have to get the last word on your life. Mm. They just don't. 
I have, I've, I feel like I've been to hell and back and wrestled with the toughest questions. And I have discovered that, yes, God is real. And yes, he is good. And yes, he can be trusted. I believe that now more than I ever have. Uh, and with that being said, um, just know that he's going to bring you through. That you are not forgotten. And, and this crisis you're in is not too big for him. Uh, you are not lost and abandoned, that uh, he's got you and he will bring you through. Uh, so somehow, somehow in this place, this undone place where you are, um, bank on his love. I just, I always come back to Romans 8, 35, 39, mm -hmm. because for me, this is the anchor of my soul. Mm -hmm. uh, so what then shall separate us from the love of Christ? So trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is our anchor. And my friend, his love for you is far greater than anything you can imagine. You don't have to believe it right now. I believe it for both of us and his love for you will not change. You can bank on it. I think I want to alter call. <laughs> <laughs> because Michelle, that is so, that's the core. And um, that's it. thank you for speaking hope into, into our lives when we just feel so hopeless and for believing for one mm -hmm. another because mm -hmm. we need that. Um, yeah. Michelle, you have your blog, michellecachette.com. Is that right? I do. Okay. I post there. I try to post there every week, but you know. <laughs> you're doing great. In fact, your post today was wonderful. Thank um, you. If this interview has meant something to you, our listener, or someone who is watching, I really want to encourage you to connect with Michelle or to connect with me and the Reframing Ministry Department at Insight for Living. We are here to come alongside you and to be a comfort to help fortify you, to build you up, to bring hope into your life, to offer help and resources so that you will see God at the end of the storm and what he will bring about in your life. I hope that you will please connect with us today. Michelle, thank you so very much for your time and for your ministry. And I love how you end the podcast. This is your one, your one and only life. Now go make it count. <laughs> exactly. Thanks, Colleen. That. It's such an honor to be with you today. All right. Thank you, Michelle. Have a great afternoon. You too.